calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, 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 everybody. I hope we're having a wonderful Monday morning. I am coming at you on Sunday, recording this little intro for you all, because I am doing a release of another Patreon episode that I really, really enjoy. And the reason that I wanted to put this one up, not just to give myself a little bit of extra time to work on some episodes for the future, but also because this was a person that I had thought about discussing on the show for a while. But because she is more problematic, it was something that I kind of went back and forth about. But this last month, I was initially going to cover her book, the Second Sex on the Angry Feminist Book Club until I received it in the mail and realized how long and dense it is. So I went to Patreon and I was like, all right, we're doing something different this month. We're going to do an episode on the author, Simone de Beauvoir. And then I also did an episode, which if you haven't listened, I highly recommend it, where I discussed three times that I almost joined a cult and in the first story I call my mom and I just kind of like held my phone up to the microphone so you hear her lovely Minnesota accent telling the story of how I was babysat by children who were members of this commune this like religious cult when I was a kid and it's a gas (laughs) but anyway I get into it in the beginning of the episode but Simone de Beauvoir is a very complicated figure in the history of feminism and I feel like it's easy to shy away from discussing her because of that. But I think it is important to be able to recognize the downfalls in our history in order to not repeat the same things or just to acknowledge the fact that people are complicated. You know, she could come up with some really wonderful theories regarding feminism and be a very intelligent philosopher, but also be an abusive 
person, you know? So I wanted to examine all of that and also still talk a little bit about The Second Sex because it was a very, very, very important book to feminism and it actually really inspired Betty for Dan to go on to write The Feminine Mystique, which is going to be the book that I'm covering this month for September. That episode will be up probably... Wednesday I'm just finishing up reading the first half of the book right now and doing all my notes and everything like that and I'm thoroughly enjoying reading the book I can't believe I've never read it but in my mind I was like I know so much about Betty for Dan and about the book do I really have to read it but I highly recommend it and if you do decide to read the book you might as well join the Angry Feminist Book Club while you're at it. You can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist to join the book club. It is $5 a month, but if you wanted to support a little bit extra and get some extra content, you can join the Feminist Faves level at $8 a month where you are automatically part of the book club, but you also get these episodes ad-free. You get them a little bit early and you get some bonus content as well. Lastly, I want to remind you all again that there is one episode available of the show that I co-produced with my friend India called Still Learning. I highly recommend everyone listen to it. It is such a great first episode. That first one really took a lot, a lot, a lot of work on both of our ends, and I'm very, very proud of it. So go ahead and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review wherever you listen and share it with your friends. And please don't forget to do that with this show as well. If there is a topic that you think someone in your life would find interesting, go ahead and send them the episode and see if they are down to listen to more. You never know. And also, if you're a fan of the show and you haven't yet left a review, please do so. It truly does help me out so, so much. This isn't just like, tell me nice things on the internet, even though, I mean, who doesn't love reading nice things about themselves, you know? But if you do enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review there because you can actually leave a little sentence about why you enjoy the show, which I personally think really does help people decide to press play on an episode but if you listen on Spotify you can also rate the show there I haven't plugged the Instagram in a while but definitely follow on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist for any updates silly memes reels all that sort of stuff I love all of you so very very much thank you for all of your love and support I hope you enjoy this episode where I discuss Simone de Beauvoir And I do want to make one quick note. I know I do say something before the topic is discussed, but there is some discussion of sexual assault and sexual assault and grooming of minors in this episode. So if that's something that's going to be difficult for you to listen to, please listen with discretion or sit out this episode. Simone de Beauvoir was a French existentialist philosopher, writer, social theorist, and feminist activist even though it would take her quite a while to actually label herself a feminist. Simone's book, The Second Sex, and many of her other works and ideologies changed the world for women and feminism forever. But as I was mentioning before, this isn't going to be a feminist faves episode about how awesome and amazing Simone is by any means. Because while Simone was incredibly intelligent and ahead of her time, she was also accused of grooming and sexual abuse. And I just don't stand for that shit. So this episode will not be celebrating Simone, but will be, to the best of my ability, a full and true picture of who this person is and what led her to do the work that she did. 
I will be discussing the accusations against Simone, and I'll be sure to give a warning beforehand for any listeners who want to skip ahead through that part. She was born Simone Lucie Ernestine Marie Bertrand de Beauvoir on January 9th, 1908, my half birthday. <laughs> I don't know why I'm always so excited about half birthdays, but I am. Into a bourgeois Parisian family in the sixth arrondissement. Her family, being bourgeois, were a class of business owners and merchants who emerged in the late Middle Ages, originally as the middle class. Her father is Georges Bertrand, and I did the best I could with that French pronunciation. I googled it. How did I do? And he was a lawyer who had once been an aspiring actor. Her mother, Francois de Beauvoir, I love the sound of that name, a wealthy banker's daughter and devout Catholic who would also raise her children as such. Two years after Simone's birth, her sister Helene came into the world on June 6, 1910. After the birth of her sister, the family began to struggle to maintain their bourgeois status after losing much of their money during World War I, and Francois insisted upon her children going to a prestigious convent school. So they weren't making as much money as they used to, but they still really wanted to give off the appearance that they were well off. They were able to, you know, take their kids to the best of the convent schools or whatever. But the finances for the family would just continue to worsen as time went on. And, and during the First World War, unfortunately, the family lost its bourgeois status. Like I mentioned, Simone was raised a devout Catholic and was sent to a convent school as a kid. And at one time, she even told people that she wanted to become a nun when she grew up. I understand this a lot. I think that there is something about religion that can be so soothing and comforting for kids and for anyone really that needs some sort of direction. And, you know, my mom is very Catholic and my dad is technically Catholic too, but he wasn't practicing at all where my mom was more so. But like we weren't a super prayerful family. We didn't have pictures of Jesus on the wall, you know, maybe a couple of crosses here and there that were tiny, but like nothing major. We weren't like an obviously religious family or anything like that. But when I was in sixth grade and things started going downhill for me at the first Catholic school that I went to, halfway through, I was sent to a different school that is like hardcore Catholic. And I had two second cousins in my class that I had never met because they were on the side of the family that were like Bible thumpers, super hardcore religious and kind of hard to deal with, let's just say. So my part of my family didn't really interact with them all that much. They kind of had their own little group of family that they interacted with. So anyways, I was involved in this new school that was hyper, hyper, hyper Catholic to the point where we still had Latin masses. So it would alternate every other week between a mass in Latin and then a mass in English. At my first school, I was able to be an altar server. At my second school, only boys were allowed to be altar servers. And also, the convent was directly connected to the school as well. 
I think there was a convent on the grounds or maybe an old convent that wasn't used anymore of my first school as well, but it definitely wasn't as accessible because I remember in my middle school in particular because the convent door was at the end of the hallway to my sixth grade classroom and I would see the sisters coming in and out all the time. They were very much a part of things at the school and they were all so sweet. There was, you know, a vast array of ages and things like that. And when I was in eighth grade and going through a really, really difficult time, both at home and in school, I really relied on this one nun who was a bit elderly. She was probably in her 70s or something like that. And she was just so grandmotherly and kind. And I would like go to the convent after school and like sit in the parlor and chat with her for a little bit. And it made her day and it made my day. And she was just so, so sweet. And also during that time, I really did start to get more into my religion and became more devoutly Catholic because I think I really just needed something else to rely on at the time to make me feel better about so many things that were uncertain in my life at the time. And I think also having such a kind nun take care of me in this way was also something that definitely swayed me toward being more religious as well. But for Simone, by the age of 14, she began to question her faith and eventually became an atheist. I kind of feel like I started questioning my religion when I was in high school, but I think I just didn't participate as much in it. Like I stopped going to church as much and things like that, but I still very much believed in God. I had a fear for a very long time of hell, literally, that like if I stopped believing in God, that all of these bad things would happen to me. And it really took me a while to realize that that's not true. <laughs> like, you know, lightning never struck down, nothing like that ever happened because I started going toward more of my critical thinking side of my brain and, you know, wondering what kind of faith made the most sense to me. And, you know, I've talked about this so many times on the podcast, so I don't need to get into it now, but I slowly, I think, started pulling away more in my early adulthood, more so in my 20s. And it's been a progressive thing, but I eventually started feeling a lot of anxiety around going to mass and being in church due to a lot of the bullying and stuff that happened to me at my second school. And I also think as I've educated myself on certain things or had certain experiences in my life, I was going to church and hearing things in the sermons that I didn't feel connected to my own beliefs and my own morals. And that was something else that, you know, slowly pulled me away from the church as well. And now Simone eventually called herself an atheist. And I don't know if I really consider myself to be an atheist necessarily, because I feel like, and I'm sure to so many people, this sounds like such a stupid LA thing, but I do think I'm more of a spiritual person and I'm still exploring what that means, but I feel I feel a connection to something else. And something that's always going to tie me to that is that I just feel a really tight connection to my grandma, my mom's mom. And I'm like, I wouldn't have that connection with her so long after she's passed away if there wasn't something else out there. So I'm a little bit more like agnostic. 
For the rest of Simone's life, she held the conviction that the dogmas of religion prevent critical thinking and analytic reasoning, which is necessary for the evolution of human thought, she believed. In her opinion, religion was a way of putting a stop to progressive, forward thinking and instead makes one rely purely on faith instead of free will. She once wrote, Faith is often an impuritance that is given in childhood as part of the middle class equipment, and this is unquestionably retained together with the rest of it. If a doubt arises, it is often thrust aside for emotional reasons, a nostalgic loyalty to the past, affection for those around one, dread of the loneliness and banishment that threaten those who don't conform. Habits of mind, a system of reference and values have been acquired, and one becomes their prisoner. She also wrote, Faith allows an evasion of those difficulties which the atheist confronts honestly, and to crown all, the believer derives a sense of great superiority from this very cowardice itself. I think it was very bold of Simone to speak so freely about the way that she viewed religion, because I think that at this time, it wasn't seen as ladylike, <laughs> most certainly. But I think it was almost seen as being amoral in a lot of ways. I think especially for people who are deeply religious, hearing things like this is easily upsetting to them. And it makes them, you know, want to put their foot down and say, no, I, I am a critical thinker. I do have these thoughts. And I don't necessarily think that everyone who is part of a religion is some like brainwashed idiot or anything like that. But I think that it's also just good to consider that when you're part of any organization and part of a church, that we're asking questions and we're making sure that we feel that whatever belief system is morally aligned with ours and not just blindly follow everything that's being told to us and have this blind faith. I think that's kind of what she's getting at here. And I do agree with her that there is this fear when you don't have a faith in God or whatever, or in a traditional faith, because you are putting more of the onus on yourself to make good decisions for your own fate to be a happy one, to be fulfilled. And that's a lot of pressure when you actually put your life on your own shoulders. When Simone came into young adulthood, what was most expected of women was to find a suitable husband. And with her family's finances in decline, her dowry diminished quite a bit as well, literally making her value as a woman and wife decrease. With that, Simone decided that she must support herself. I personally don't think she was too interested in marriage and finding a forever suitor to begin with. She had always been incredibly intelligent. Much like in the episode I just did covering the Pankhurst, Simone's father once said that she thought like a man. He introduced Simone to literary classics and encouraged her to expand her mind. And what she would end up doing was probably seen as very male at the time. She studied mathematics, languages, literature, and philosophy, earning multiple degrees. In 1929, at the age of 21, she became the youngest woman to pass the philosophy exam aggregation in her school, placing only second in the rankings to Jean-Paul Sartre, who was taking the exam for the second time. When Jean-Paul Sartre first met Simone de Beauvoir, he fell hard. But Simone still held fast that she didn't want to get married. In 1929, when they first got together, Sartre proposed for them to have a contingent relationship, meaning they could sleep with other people. They decided they would be totally transparent with one another about their relationships with others. 
Simone was also open with Sartre about the fact that she was bisexual and wanted to have relationships with both men and women. Instead of getting married, they decided to join in a spiritual union, which would remain for the rest of their lives. Pre-World One polyamory? I ain't mad at this one bit. This makes me think about the fact that it is very strange that I see a lot of people being like, what's with this, you know, modern sexual revolution going on where all, there's these polyamorous relationships and new pronouns and new types of relationships forming and marriages and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, no, there's been evidence of different types of relationships and different types of love forever. You just have to look a little bit harder to find it. <laughs> it wasn't as openly discussed, you know? And the reason it wasn't as discussed was because it was incredibly dangerous to do so. So I don't think a lot of these sexual differences, if you want to call them that, were really even discussed until modern times because why would you put yourself in such danger? And that's really what makes Simone and Sartre a little bit different is the fact that they seemed so ready and eager to be open and honest with each other and with other people in their lives about what their relationship looked like. And from an outsider's perspective, it's really refreshing to see that they could be so honest and open with each other about everything, especially if neither of them think monogamy would work for them. It seems like a pretty good setup. Together, they became stars of the Parisian intellectual scene, and they would also get involved in political causes together. Much of their relationship is known to the world due to their own diaries and letters they sent to one another, which were found much after their deaths. More about those letters to come. But to the public, Simone and Sartre served as models for thousands of other couples who believed the well-publicized stories about their pact in deciding against marriage. All right, this is the time when we are going to start getting into more of the horrendous and problematic things that Simone did in her life. So a little bit of a warning here. From the years 1929 to 1943, Simone was a teacher at the Lycee level before she could support herself financially with her writing. And for those of you who don't know, Lycee is secondary school. I only know that from Anne Frank. <laughs> in an article from 2008, it reads... David War became a glorified procurist, exploiting her profession as a teacher to seduce impressionable female pupils and then passing them on to Sartre, who had a taste for virgins. Yikes and fucking gross. While working as a teacher, Simone met the student Olga Kosakiewicz, and the two began an affair. Not only was Olga her student, but she was also just 17 years old at the time. Not that the age would really make much of a difference when there's that kind of power imbalance anyways. When Simone introduced Sartre to Olga, he also wanted to have a sexual relationship with her. Initially, Olga was disinterested in Sartre, so he moved on to her sister, Wanda. Wanda was very fond of Sartre, so they began their own relationship. Olga would eventually engage in relations with Sartre, though, spending 1934 through 1935 with Simone and 1935 to 1937 with Sartre. She was described as irresponsible, had a rebellious character, and had emotional highs and lows. She was also called authentic and spontaneous. In 1943, Simone published She Came to Stay, a fictional novel based on the relationship between Sartre, Olga, and Wanda. In 1943, Sartre also wrote the play The Flies and cast Olga in the leading role, giving her the opportunity to debut as an actress, a profession she would do for the rest of her life. 
The relationship would end up being so damaging for Olga that she began self-harming to cope. Olga was part of a group of young followers of Simone, which they called the family, and was at one time so close to Simone and Sartor that she was considered a surrogate child for the couple, since they had decided not to have any. That's really gross, considering that they're sleeping with her as well. Eventually, Olga married another one of Simone's lovers, Jacques Laurent Bost. Olga began a pattern where Simone would seduce an impressionable young female student, then pass her along to Sartor. According to an article from ParisUpdate.org, quote, a number of these conquests would themselves be dropped after having served their purpose. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. When Simone was 30 years old, she moved on to another young female student, the 16-year-old Bianca Bienenfeld. Bianca was incredibly bright and was at the top of her class, according to Simone. By Bianca's own admission, she was dazzled by the beauty and, quote, brilliant, piercing, bold intelligence of her teacher, Simone, as she grew very fond of her. A few months later, the 33-year-old Sartor, too, would sleep with Bianca, who was still only 16 years old, in a hotel room. At the time, Bianca described their relationship as a threesome, or a love triangle. But as she grew older and wiser, she accused Simone of pimping her out to Sartor. It is believed at this time that Simone and Sartre's sexual relationship began to dry up, and Simone may have been grooming these young women and girls as a weird, twisted way of keeping him around and making herself worthy to him. It's a little Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein to me. As for Bianca, she was missing something that Simone and Sartre could fill for her, parental figures, making her vulnerable to these manipulative adults. She really relied on them and their love. Simone and Sartor had promised Bianca that they would never mention their relationships verbally or in writing, ever, except for, of course, in their letters to each other. So with that, Simone only ever refers to Bianca as her friend in her work. Bianca would go on to work under Sartor and truly believed that she was a key figure in their three-way relationship. Bianca's affair and abuse from Sartor lasted for about a year, and in the meantime, he maintained affairs with several other young women. Then she was dropped, first by Sartre, then by Simone, and she was devastated. She married the following year to a classmate, and since both Bianca and her new husband Bernard were Jewish, they spent much of World War II evading capture from the Nazis. They would also both play a small part in the resistance. The treatment she received in this time and the end of their relationship she found so traumatic that the pain never left her. She would have frequent bouts of depression and never really recovered from her rejection by Sartor or her so-called obsession with Simone. She reached out to Simone after the war and the two would have a lunch date once a month until Simone passed away in 1986, six years after Sartor's death. But when Bianca was 70 years old, she wrote her book in a blinding rage against Simone and Sartor. When Simone passed away, the letters between her and Sartre were published by Simone's daughter, Sylvie Laban, and when Bianca read what they had written to each other about their affair, she was livid. 
Though she'd been given the pseudonym Louise Vadrine, she still felt incredibly betrayed by the dismissive way her friends had referred to her in these letters. The two discussed her in what she saw as ridicule and contempt. She said she was, quote, nauseated and disgusted when I discovered the true personality of the woman I had loved all my life. My eyes were finally opened. In the end, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir did me only wrong. How fucking devastating. To truly love these people, to think that they're your friends, family, practically, to defend them, so on and so forth, to even rekindle this relationship toward the end of Simone's life and have these lunch dates and still not know that they were really abusing you and grooming you and speaking horribly behind your back. This must have felt like the biggest knife in the back. On top of all of that, in her book, she also wrote that she felt the couple had ignored the dangers she faced as a Jew in occupied France. She said, They never worried about my fate or tried to get news of me from the end of 1940 till liberation in 1944. There are also some examples of vile anti-Semitism in the letters between Simone and Sartre. Once, Simone wrote, She's prophesying doom like a Cassandra, what's new? and hesitating between the concentration camp and suicide. What the actual fuck? And it seems that it was pretty common for Simone and Sartre to write coldly about their partners to one another, which is just a very icky, icky thing. First off, you're taking advantage of and grooming children for sex, and on top of that, you're speaking badly of them? What fucking evil bullies? The letters describe lies they told these young women and laugh at their discarding of women once they were, quote, finished with them. In June of 1943, another young victim by the name of Natalie Sorokin told her mother of the affairs she had had with Simone and Sartre. Enraged at this, her mother finally decided to do something about this situation, and she complained to the school authorities. I wish she had gone to the police. Simone was accused of behavior leading to the corruption of a minor, and her teaching license was suspended indefinitely. Finally, someone put an end to Simone's actions. Simone wrote her first philosophical essay, A Discussion of Existentialist Ethics, in 1944, and continued on this topic with the 1947 essay, The Ethics of Ambiguity. In the first essay, she argued that it was impossible to base an ethical system on her partner Sartre's work being in nothingness. Interesting. In her 1947 essay, she asserts that a person is fundamentally free to make choices, a freedom that comes from one's own nothingness, which is an essential aspect to one's ability to be self-aware. She also says that each person is also a facticity, or just an object, to others. As free people, we have the ability to take note of ourselves and choose what to do, and as a factic, we are constrained by physical limits, social barriers, and the expectations of political power of others. She asks, how does one remain true to one's freedom while allowing others their own freedom? It was five years later that she would release her first iconic piece of work, The Second Sex, in which the existentialist mantra becomes a feminist one. One is not born, but becomes a woman. By uttering this phrase, she was the first to articulate what has become known as the sex-gender distinction. This is so fucking applicable to today when we're trying to get anti-LGBTQ plus people to understand the differences between gender and biological sex and the historical and social construction of gender and its stereotypes. 
Simone defines women as the second sex because women are defined as being inferior to men. She argues man is considered the default and women are considered the other. Thus, humanity is male and man defines woman, not herself, but as relative to him. This just reminds me of every old wedding that you would go to. Please welcome for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. At that moment, the woman no longer even has her own fucking name. And from marriage on, women were attached to their husbands, and before that, to their fathers, never to realize their individual identities as human beings. She pointed out that Aristotle argued that women are, quote, female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities, by which I assume he means a dick and balls, and Thomas Aquinas refers to women as imperfect men and the incidental being. Fuck both of you. Simone also wrote openly about homosexuality in the second sex, saying, in itself, homosexuality is as limiting as heterosexuality. The ideal should be to be capable of loving a woman or a man, either a human being, without feeling fear, restraint, or obligation. And I really like that because it's making it known that all relationships at the end of the day are the same and should be treated equally. In the chapter entitled, Woman, Myth and Reality, Simone argues that men had made women the other in society due to applying a false aura of mystery around them. I never thought of this before, but I agree with her in this argument. She says, by adding all this mystery around women, men make the excuse not to understand women or their problems and not to help them. Women are so hard to understand. We just can't figure them out. I mean, isn't that just the oldest trope out there? As a kid, I loved this movie called What Women Want, which starred Mel Gibson before his racism was revealed. And I loved this movie as a kid. I was probably too young to be watching it, though. And in the movie, he plays this chauvinistic guy who falls into a bathtub holding a hairdryer. So he gets electrocuted and wakes up as a woman and finally understands what it's like to move through the world as a woman-presenting person. Well, unlike in the movies, cisgender men cannot simply electrocute themselves and be able to understand women, or else we would have seen a major epidemic of electrocuted men in this country. Simone argued that this stereotyping was always used by the higher-ups in the hierarchy to the group lower in the hierarchy, similarly to other categories of identity such as race, class, and religion. But, according to Simone, it was no more true than with gender, in which men stereotyped women and used it as an excuse to organize society into a patriarchy. I would argue that it was used just as much, if not more, with the Black community in getting them all to be stereotyped so much that they've been considered second-class citizens for a very long time. But I don't think Simone was uh, quite as in tuned with anti-racism at this time. In volume two, Simone contrasts a girl's upbringing to that of a boy's. She argues that women and young girls have no maternal instinct, but is taught her feminine destiny at such a young age that she is conditioned to have this kind of nurturing instinct. And I think the flip side kind of goes for young boys too. Boys are not taught to be nurturers. I truly have this idea that women possibly inherently have this more nurturing side. And I'm not even saying 
that all female identifying people feel this way, but I think that there are so many nurturing women out there because of our like evolutional brainwashing by the patriarchy. You know what I mean? We've been trained for so many times, generation after generation, to be these maternal figures, to make babies, to have that be one of our main goals in our lives, that that pressure sticks with us because we're constantly being fed these nuances throughout our lives that are enforcing this kind of structure and keeping it going. And I think that for some people, it suits them. Like me, myself right now, I am so fucking baby crazy. I'm going to lose my mind. Like someone, Max, put a baby in my belly right now, please. I want one. (laughs) And I am very different from a lot of my friends in that way, surprisingly, because so many are like, no, I, I don't want kids at all. And I'm so glad that I have so many friends that are so honest about that because that's what's going to break that change. (laughs) I'm not going to break the change because I'm nuts and want to be a mom so bad. But that just goes to show you, it's just feminism and everything is about choice. What we do as women or men or as a non-binary person, as a trans person, it's individual to each person and your identity and all of these other labels don't have to get caught up in the mix. All right, rant over, let's move on. When the first French publication of The Second Sex hit the stands in 1949, it sold 22,000 copies in just one week. In the days before social media, telephones, ads on TV, ads in, you know, news publications that came out all the time, the fact that a book could sell that many copies in just one week is pretty amazing to me, especially just after the war. And since that time, it has been translated into so many different languages. It's taught in schools, and Simone has truly become a feminist icon. In fact, this book is considered the foundation of modern feminism. What's funny, though, like a lot of other women at this time, Simone didn't really see herself as a feminist, and she wouldn't until the 70s. She didn't think that the feminist movement was socialist enough for her. So once she saw that, you know, during the second wave that things started to take on more of a socialist message, she began referring to herself more as a feminist. But by that time, she started to believe that maybe a different approach was needed or a change in approach because she was seeing that we still weren't achieving the equality worldwide that she had hoped for. But she is considered by many, many, many as being like one of the mothers of feminism or the aunties of feminism. I don't know what you would call her necessarily, but she's definitely a very important historical figure, I guess, for this particular piece of writing. But as a person, ick. In The Second Sex, she also discusses historical birth control methods from ancient Egypt, the history of abortion, all the way to the modern suffrage movement of France, the UK, the US, the Soviet Union, and Scandinavia. She examined a woman's role in the world of economic production and increasing freedom from reproductive slavery. Simone claims that a woman's only possession is her body, and she is taught to use it in service of a man. She says this is why some women gravitate sexually toward other women, in order to seek sexual and personal fulfillment in a relationship where they are not oppressed, but equal. Simone uses this same argument to answer why women tend to band together into groups. One of my favorite messages in the book is the opening of volume two, which I also mentioned when I first started talking about the second sex in this episode, and that is, 
One is not born a woman, but rather becomes a woman. I think this could be interpreted in many ways. She could be stating that a woman is taught to be submissive under the patriarchy, that she isn't born that way. She could be arguing that as girls grow biologically, they become women. I also like to think that this means that being a woman is simply a state of being or a state of mind. It isn't a specific set of private parts or bodily functions. She writes that there are no major biological differences between man and woman besides sex, but men have taken that distinction and spun it into a societal imbalance. I think of so many women out there that maybe don't fit the exact biological sexual definition of woman, yet they are still accepted as women in this society. There are things that are going on with people's health that you would have no idea about. There are hormone imbalances. Sometimes people's internal organs are different than their external organs. You know, there are so many different ways of being a woman. And I think that for the intersectional feminist, that is becoming more and more understood. But in the broader world, sadly, it's still very, very misunderstood. It isn't about how the world perceives us but how we see ourselves and grow into ourselves. This harnesses a belief that everyone should be able to define themselves and use themselves as a tool for freedom. This idea is an existentialist concept that life is not predetermined by any force, but presently by free will. And honestly, I think that's kind of comforting. I choose my own destiny. At the time of its release, the book was criticized by renowned sex researcher Alfred Kinsey, who said the book offered no new information or scientific discovery. He just sounds like a stick in the mud. The book was also quickly added to the Vatican's list of banned books, and it remains there to this day. This is, of course, due to all the birth control and abortion talk, but the church was also upset by what the atheist author had to say about religion. She argued that religion is a tool of oppression toward women. Other feminists at this time disagreed with what was in the book, saying it adhered too much to the male notion of equality. Others claimed that Simone was aiming at the wrong enemy and that she should be going after capitalism. The enemy isn't men, but capitalism, said French intellectual Jeanette Columbelle. Declaring a conflict between men and women distracts one from the real problem, the misery of the working class and the threat of war. Many other women may have already felt that they already accomplished a lot in support of women's rights in their lives, as France had achieved women's suffrage five years before The Second Sex was published in 1944. As her fame grew with the popularity of The Second Sex, she rode that wave by publishing another book, The Mandarins, where more attention was put onto feminist themes, examining it more carefully. However, she wasn't gaining the respect that she had expected amongst her peers, who slighted her work compared to her male peers. Clearly, the idea that freedom should never infringe on another's freedom was lost to the men around her. Even though they were incredibly intelligent and many were highly regarded philosophers because they could not understand a woman's perspective. But this could also be because the text was not considered philosophical at first, but about feminism and sex, so they didn't even see it as being a piece of science. It also seemed the public was more interested in the goings-on of Simone's personal life rather than her academic work. The Second Sex inspired future works of feminist literature like The Female Eunuch by Germaine Greer and The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which, by the way, is the next book we're going to cover.
She would continue to write, travel, and publish for the rest of her life. She also began another partnership with an American writer named Nelson Algren, lasting from 1952 to 1959. She would remain a partner of Sartre's until his death in 1980. Simone passed away on April 14, 1986, after a brief battle with pneumonia. The headline of her obituary read, Women owe her everything. 5,000 people showed up to attend her funeral, and she was buried alongside Sartre in a cemetery in Paris. Being an atheist, though, she knew that their burials beside each other wouldn't bring them back together. She wrote in her memoirs in the days following Sartre's death, His death does not separate us. My death will not bring us together again. That is how things are. All right, well, that is my coverage of the life of Simone de Beauvoir. There's so much more out there. I could go into all of the different pieces of work that she did, but that would take a really, really long time. And I think that the most important discussion to have about Simone de Beauvoir and about the second sex is that she is a very, very complicated historical figure for us. In my opinion, she's not a good person. She's not empathetic, but she's also incredibly smart and intelligent and saw the world in a very unique way. And I think because of a lot of her thoughts and ideas, it's easy for us to perceive her as being a very open, loving, kind person because she seems so accepting of so many different types of people. But just because a person presents all of those things to the world, it doesn't actually mean that they treat the people in their lives that well. It just goes to show that you never really know who your idols are. You don't really know who these public figures are behind closed doors. And it's really good to be critical of them. I think it's very important for feminists in particular to stand up against a lot of what Simone de Beauvoir did because she is so highly regarded to this day as a feminist icon. And while I think we can still applaud her for the second sex and to agree with a lot of the things that she said, I think that having more knowledge out there about the full person that she was and the full picture of her life is very important so we don't have a skewed idea of the fact that all of these people were perfect because they weren't. And we can't pretend that. That just makes the feminist movement look bad if we were like, no, we were always perfect and everything was great. Like, no, there's a bunch of fucking racism. There's homophobia. There's all these terrible, ugly things that have been involved in the history of feminism. And we got to talk about that shit if we're going to be better, right? All right. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. I'm very excited to record the next bonus episode. The suggestion that most of you have gone with is for me to discuss the three times I almost joined a cult. So that episode will be up next Wednesday. And next Wednesday will also be the Angry Feminist Book Club Zoom party. And that will be at 3 p.m. Pacific time. So where I'm at in California. If you have any other questions, just let me know. Over the next week or so, I'm going to set up the Zoom link and get everyone who wants to be involved to get the link and all of that kind of stuff. So please keep an eye out for any of those notifications, so on and so forth. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for spending your money to be a part of this Patreon family. I appreciate it so much. 
all of this goes into improving the show more and more and your love and support truly means so, so much to me. Thank you all so much. With all that being said, I encourage you to read on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.